0: Will you open your Bibles to the ninth chapter of Luke, verses 28 to 36, for our sermon text this morning, Luke nine, twenty-eight to 36. Once you find that and put a finger there, would you turn to the end of your New Testament, to the book of Revelation, the first chapter, and I'll read verses 9 to 20. We'll begin with Luke chapter 9. Verses 28 to 36. This is the Word of God. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming, and behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And it came about... As these were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son my chosen one listen to him and when the voice had spoken Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen now we go to the first chapter of the revelation beginning at verse 9 I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven Churches father we ask that you by your spirit would make these mysteries plain to us today that we would see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ on the pages of Scripture and that we might be changed by it for your glory and the good of your church in his precious name we ask Amen A proper understanding of God's providence includes not only the wonderful fact that He sovereignly works all things together for the good of those who love Him, but also that to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. He's made everything beautiful in its time. So not only do the right things happen, to advance God's saving purposes, they happen at just the right time. They happen in just the right order because the only wise God, our Savior, has so ordained and providentially arranged things. He does this for his glory, but then also for the blessing of his covenant people. It's a genuinely helpful Christian doctrine always, but it seems to be especially so in hard times. At times of loss, confusion, perplexity, heartbreak, defeat. It's especially helpful at that moment you find yourself standing at the very brink of eternity. The confidence that your loving Heavenly Father makes no mistakes either in purpose or timing, this confidence provides a refuge for your troubled soul. His name and the infinitely wise and good nature it represents. His name is a high tower. We run into it, and we're safe. Now, we've just read of the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's a puzzle to many people. What exactly is this strange thing we read of? What's going on here? Why does it happen? And why does the transfiguration happen at this particular point in the Lord's ministry? We search the Old Testament and the Gospel records for some analogy to help us explain it, and we come up virtually empty-handed. Exodus 34 tells us that the skin of Moses' face shone when he came down from Mount Sinai after talking with Jehovah, but that was a reflected glory. It wasn't his own. It didn't start with him. In fact, it faded over time. And in that case, it was only Moses' face that shone, not his whole being. Moses' clothing, for example, didn't dazzle anyone with the glistening brilliance of white lightning. In fact, he was able to hide the radiance of his face whenever he wanted to, just by putting a simple veil over it. Or what about Elijah? Elijah, in 2 Kings chapter 2, is taken out of this world into glory by chariots and horses of fire. But there's no radiance of his person that we know of. There's simply nothing quite like this transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing, at least, between his incarnation and his ascension. Even after his resurrection, he was mistaken on one occasion for a gardener. There's nothing on the side of history we call his ministry of humiliation that parallels this transfiguration on the mountain. So did these things really happen? And did they happen this way? What a thing to ask. Of course they did. Every relevant hard fact of his transfiguration on that one singular occasion was confirmed by multiple witnesses. There were three disciples with him at the time to serve as eyewitnesses. There was Peter, there was James, there was John. Though James didn't live long enough, Peter and John later referred to that glimpse of glory in their letters. Both of them did. And then three evangelists made a permanent historical record of it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These things actually took place on a mountain north of Galilee. But the question remains, what exactly was the transfiguration? What does it signify? Why now? Why now? These are the three points we'll try to answer together this evening. First of all, what was the transfiguration of Jesus? just a week earlier, the apostles, you remember, had correctly answered the question on everyone's mind, who then is this Jesus? They'd answered it exactly right. You're the Christ of God. On the heels of which, Jesus first tells them to keep it quiet and then lets, lets them know in a practical sense what his being, the Christ of God, is going to mean, first for him and then later on for us who follow him. Now, it's a hard thing, a very hard thing, to see our most cherished dreams dashed to pieces. It's a hard thing to see our heroes fall, to see our Messiah die. Because when he dies, our whole world and life view that's been built upon him dies with him and then somehow has to be rebuilt from the ground up. But those are exactly the prospects that this little apostolic school of God's kingdom now faced. They are following, they now realize, not only a good teacher, they are following the very Christ of God. And this Christ of God must suffer many things and be rejected by men and die. The long-awaited kingdom of God, it seems, is very soon going to lose its king. As for this being raised again the third day, we have absolutely no idea what it means. All we're able to take in just now is that the very Christ of God, this wonderful Jesus we love, he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to die. So you can be sure it's been a very hard week. For everyone at the school. Do we keep it going, this apostolic school of preaching the kingdom of God? Do we keep pressing forward? What next? There is, as I said at the beginning, a time for every purpose under heaven. Now, about eight days after these sayings, that is a full week, including the six intervening days, as Matthew and Mark count the days. Other things happened on that mountain, things both glorious and inglorious, but that was the transfiguration of Christ in itself. That was the transfiguration proper. Solemnly attested by multiple eyewitnesses, it had three main features. First of all, let's not overlook the fact that it took place in the context of the prayer of Jesus Christ. On that mountain, Christ Jesus was praying. He was pouring out his heart to the Father while the others quietly listened along for a while. And listened. And listened. And it seems they grew drowsing, listening to him pray. After all, it's probably late evening by now. They'd had the hike up the mountain earlier that day. They'd had plenty of fresh air, plenty of exercise, and now they're sitting somewhere on the mountain at an elevation to which fishermen on the lowest freshwater lake in the world aren't accustomed. The air is just a bit thinner up here. As Christ is still praying, Peter and those who are with him were heavy with sleep. And the careless reader who reads this says, Aha! So what we have here is someone's dream dream. Something they dreamed while they slept, except it's clearly not a dream. Maybe Peter, James, and John slept through some of the wonderful prayer, as they were on occasion prone to do, but this, they didn't miss the parts of the transfiguration that give people trouble. Luke is very frank. He's very transparent about the human frailties of these young men. They were heavy with sleep. But then something remarkable had then suddenly jarred them all wide awake. And they tell of what they saw not while sleeping, what they saw while they were fully awake and alert. Because secondly, the transfiguration revealed the intrinsic glory of Christ. And that was a glory not to be missed. A glory not to be slept through. It's late evening. It's dark. And a man is quietly praying. And you listen. Minute after minute, maybe hour after hour. You listen. You grow drowsy. You drop off for a moment. And then suddenly it's as though lightning struck the speaker sitting right next to you. This isn't the lighting of a candle, not the lighting of a lamp. This is Like something they'd never seen before. This is a floodlight. This is a searchlight. It's brilliant, white, dazzling light that floods the whole area. And where's it coming from? Not the sun. The sun went down. It's not the moon. It's not the stars. The light is coming from him, from his face from his clothes and he's not reflecting it he's emitting it he's the source of it and it jarred them all out of sleep and it burned them burned itself into their respective memories so that peter years later remembering it would be able to write for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our lord jesus christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And John was there as well. And that same experience left its mark on him. So his good news opens with the announcement that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father full of grace and truth. So the transfiguration took place in the context of the prayer of Christ and it revealed the intrinsic glory of Christ. For one brief moment, the true humanity of Jesus is like a curtain drawn back to reveal a glimpse of the glorious God he eternally is. And thirdly, the transfiguration featured the conversation of two men with him. No longer do the drowsy disciples hear the subdued voice of one man who's familiar to them. At the very moment the brilliance of that light jars them awake, they also become aware of other voices joining his. Unfamiliar voices. Shielding their eyes against the light of his presence, they perceive two glorious men they have never seen before men whose voices they've never heard before. The three address each other by name, apparently, or else their names would never be known. One of them is Moses, that divinely appointed mediator of the Old Covenant and its law. Moses, whom the Lord himself buried in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor some 1,400 years earlier, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Nor can you can be sure did anyone ever expect to see him again. The other man is Elijah, the prophet, whom everyone knew the scriptures was expecting. And here's the point of their appearance in glory. Here's the point of their conversation. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish, in Jerusalem. No transcript of the conversations available, of course, because there is no opportunity to take notes. But the thrust of the conversation is clear enough. The law and the prophets agree that the Christ must die The law and the prophets agree that he must die in Jerusalem, whose very name signifies the inheritance of peace. So here's the significance of the transfiguration. It's just as Jesus later put it to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Having by that point on the cross accomplished his departure, having actually obtained for us the inheritance of peace with God, He reminds those two downcast disciples of some things they really should have understood by now. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Well, much of the Christian life and study is a matter of remedial work, isn't it? We're always having to go back and rethink things. We're always trying to catch up on things that we really should already know. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that you're not quite where you need to be in your understanding of Jesus Christ and your life in his kingdom? I certainly do. Which is why you and I need to immerse ourselves more fully in the Scriptures. Here in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, we find not the Christ of our own imagination. Here we find the true Christ. Here we find the dying, atoning, rising, victorious Christ to whom all the law and the prophets testify. It's in the Scriptures. By giving Peter, James, and John this early glimpse of His eternal glory and this personal testimony of the law and prophets to the need of His coming departure, He's doing them a wonderful kindness. And so, of course, is God the Father, who from the midst of the Shekinah glory of old, that glory cloud that once led His people through the wilderness to their inheritance, from the midst of that glory cloud God the Father seals the matter for them. This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. It's a wonderful kindness that having burned itself into their memories, stayed with them throughout the ordeal that lay before them. Is preparing them for the coming dark night of betrayal and death as the drama of his departure plays itself out in Jerusalem. This then was the transfiguration and its significance. But the question remains why now? Why now? Well, it's because the great Galilean ministry, the height of his popular acclaim, is behind them. It's all behind them. For a while he's retired to the north, teaching his apostles and preparing them for his coming descent into the valley of suffering and humiliation and death. It's a road that would soon take them southward toward Jerusalem. One final note. You've noticed I haven't made much of Peter and his suggestion of making three tents there on the mountain. This is purposeful. I find, maybe you do too, that Christians tend to be a little bit critical of Peter. Preachers most of all. Peter's uh, Peter's natural enthusiasm, his gusto, For the Lord Jesus Christ, his gusto for life and living, make him appear at times something of a buffoon. Beloved, may we never think a Christian brother or sister a buffoon. They are not buffoons. Not then, not now. Because the plain fact is, sometimes life just surprises us. Overwhelms us, throws us off balance, and in the moment we say things we really don't mean, we suggest things we can't begin to trace out the logical consequences of. Three tenths? Whatever, four. Do men who abide in everlasting glory need the work of human hands to make them comfortable for the night? Or are we thinking of three separate tabernacles to represent three coordinate religions somehow on a par with one another? No. Let's speak no more of tents. Let's speak no more of religious pluralism. As Moses and Elijah, having delivered their testimony of Christ, finally disappeared into the glory enveloping them, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son my chosen one if you're going to listen to anybody listen to him and when the voice had spoken Jesus was found alone I say thanks be to God for Peter thanks be to God for personal initiative Thanks be to God for the wholehearted gusto of enterprising believers whose hearts are in the right place. But above all else, thanks be to God for his Christ, chosen of the Father, Christ, the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power and in glory stands among the golden lampstands these churches purchased with his own blood amen